Hello, and welcome back to the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brandon Buddha. This episode will be the first of three wrap-up episodes for Gene Wolfe's novel, Peace. Yeah, after uh, nearly two years at this point, we are finally wrapping up this novel, but also taking our time about it. We are indeed going to do three episodes. Next episode, we will get to the puzzles and mysteries that we know are a pretty big draw and interest for a lot of uh, Gene Wolfe readers. And then after that, we'll talk about writing craft and really just make our way out of of peace. And what that means is that this episode, the first of our three wrap-up episodes, we are going to be talking about the themes and motifs in this novel. Now, we've chosen five topics. I'll introduce them in in a moment. Uh, They won't be exhaustive. I don't think anything we can introduce here can be exhaustive and uh, still have an episode that's under uh, five or six hours. So we're just going to kind of go through (laughs) some things that we think the book is mostly about. Uh, Glenn, I'm going to do a little bit more of a deeper introduction here. I know you weren't expecting this, but uh, I I have a few things I want to say kind of as a as an opener to the wrap-up episodes. The first thing I want to say um, is that, boy, so much has changed since we started this this novel. We, we've both gone through so many transitions and changes while reading this book. I, I'm not sure that we're the same people doing the wrap-up episodes today as the people who did the first <laughs> recap episodes in, in chapter one. Uh, and, and so I, I, you know, I want to say that this has been an awesome experience and I'm really excited to kind of be at the end of it. And I hope I'm not speaking for you uh, when I say this, Glenn, um, but the first thing I want to say, the first statement I want to make uh, about this novel to open the show is that we've, we found no evidence of aliens in peace. Uh, and I wanted to get that out of the way up front in case our listeners were looking for us to make an extended argument about that or something. Yeah, I mean, I think probably they were, though. I think the question of whether or not there are aliens in a Gene Wolfe novel, a certain Gene Wolfe novel, is actually a topic we will be taking up in the third of these three wrap-up episodes. Well, what I really want to say is this. I, I've had my nose stuck in this book uh, you know, while we've been doing the recap episodes, and, and, and I've been really – we spent a lot of time, two years – reading this book, looking at this book at the sentence and paragraph level. And for me, it was my first time through the novel. So I would stop where the episode stopped and then pick up where we picked back up and and just examined this book uh, at a really, really detailed uh, viewpoint. But between our last episode on chapter five and prepping for these wrap up episodes, I had the opportunity to just sit down and and read the novel and put aside, uh, you know, my puzzle hunting hat and, and looking for questions in the text and just read it as a, 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 on the level of enjoyment, really. And I want to say this, uh, this novel really works on that level. It is just a real delight to read. It doesn't require all of the work that we've done on it to just enjoy reading. So if you're just joining us now, just listening to the wrap up episodes, or if you've read along with us the whole way, I just want to say that this is one of the more simply enjoyable wolf novels that I've read. And what we're about to do with to it <laughs> with our excavation of the text, um, I'm going to admit it's maybe on some levels overkill. And I really just recommend reading this book as a book and just going through it, uh, if that makes any sense. And um, only if you're a desperate podcaster should you go into the level of detail that Glenn, you and I are about to go into. 
<laughs> yeah, we, and and have gone into. I mean, we have really read this book, maybe not quite paragraph by paragraph, but half page by half page, and really have taken a long time. And so, when all is said and done, even just the reading that we have done for doing, you know, this podcast series, we've each read the novel at least five times, right? Yeah. Which is in, intense, an intense way to do it. But then also, yeah, to not read ahead, because that's part of how we've been doing this as well, has itself just been an interesting experience. And like you, I've just, you know, read the book one more time here. We took a month off in order to just do that. And wow, was that a super enjoyable experience to just read it without taking any notes. With I wasn't even putting sticky notes in anything, underlining anything, was not allowing myself to get up and walk to uh, my keyboard and make notes on one of the two readings I did over this month. And it was, uh, it was indeed a real pleasure. But um Let's go dissect this thing. Yeah. So as we said, we're not going to be exhaustive because there, there aren't like real strict time constraints on the episodes, but there's uh, sanity constraints maybe on the approach <laughs> to the themes and motifs. Whatever we don't get to, if we introduce something quickly... Um, We'd love to go deeper with you and have some more robust conversations on the forum or on Reddit or on Twitter or wherever you want to find us. We want to engage more deeply about this novel than maybe we have the time for, maybe the sanity for in in these three episodes. We're still going to do a lot of work. Don't get us wrong. But yeah, this episode is our themes and motifs episode. We've selected five. Uh, we're going to talk about American history and Americanness, uh, religion and metaphysics, kind of focusing on alchemy. Me a little bit. We're going to look at uh, apocalyptic imagery and death, wealth and greed, and then stories and storytelling. It's still going to be a really big episode. But Glenn, why don't you get us started on American history and American-ness? Yeah. And I think my goal here, Brandon, for the the topics that uh, you know I'm the driver on I'm not going to really be offering up any particular readings here of these themes. I think what I want to do is just really remind listeners of, hey, these are the things that we were seeing in the recap episodes and the the chapter discussion episodes as well, but try to put it all together, not to make something, but just to lump it all together to say, hey, look, this is really something that we saw throughout the novel. And I do think that one of the biggest things that Gene Wolfe is writing about in peace is American history, the idea of America, the idea of Americanness, what it means to be an American, who is an American. Can that change? Has that changed? Right? How flexible is that as a as a category? And so on. And I'm just going to run us through some of the places where we see these things. And in fact, I'm going to break this down into some, I don't know, some some smaller components and then talk about where we see them. And so one of the things that we get pretty immediately is that Wolf is very concerned with the settlement of the Americas. This shows up a lot, just three cases that I've picked here. Uh, one, Professor Peacock is super hip to cutting-edge scholarship on how and when Native Americans arrived in the Americas, which I think also then means that that's a, a question that Wolf is actually quite interested in himself. We have this painting of Christopher Columbus discovering the Americas, and we also then, of course, have this story within the story about St. Brandon sailing west to discover the Americas, right? So there's you know many places where we get this idea or this question about the settlement of the Americas. When did it happen? Who did it? What was it like? At the same time, Wolf is also really interested in the history of Cashinsville, this 
made-up town that he has here, this made-up setting, though based very clearly on a, a sort of real place that he's got some experience with. The book practically opens with this Native American treaty. And when you sit back like we just did and actually just read the novel from page one to the last page or the first page to the last page over, you know, two or three days, uh, it seems like this novel actually is kind of a family saga, right? It's about the descendants of the earliest European descended settlers and how those families are interacting with each other, what their relationships are like, but then also, you know, charting change in Cashinsville over time. We get this really cool digression about the geography of Cashinsville that also includes historical notes, including expanding the amount of uh, space on the, the riverbank and also changing the street names over time and that sort of thing. And then we get this really amazing line in chapter four, on, on page one of chapter four, about how no family is really native to Cashinsville. So um, I've got more to say here, Brandon, but I think I'll pause here just to say that I think those are in some ways two of the biggest strands that Wolf is interested in here, right? That he's interested in the settlement of the Americas, but then also interested in the settlement of Cashinsville. And so Cashinsville becomes a kind of microcosm or a kind of micro history that can stand in for maybe not the entirety of the Americas, but for you know, what becomes the United States of America at least. And so he's exploring this on two levels and, and in, in two different, but also I think similar ways. And I think it makes a really great kaleidoscope might be the metaphor I want to use for this. Kaleidoscope or even like melting pot, maybe, right? Where Cashinsville is this this microcosm of the, you know, melting pot theory of America that we were probably all taught in, in elementary school. Uh and 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 you really see that with the way that Wolf, and we've brought this up in, in past episode, handles waves of immigration. I'm really glad you brought up Columbus here, this picture of Columbus, which we also mentioned has these really Christian overtones. When we when I talk about religion in, in a few minutes, um, I'm not going to be looking at that as much, but there is also this real sense of contrast, I think, between, especially in chapter one, uh, this notion of of the, the city on the hill, the shining city on the hill that America is with this Columbus founding America, then this question of the natives, the ways of immigration. And then there's this passage also in chapter one about America, the planet of America kind of being out on the edge of nowhere, uh, on the edge of the heavens, like in, in, in some kind of Dantean uh, configuration of the cosmos. So there's just so much going on here. It's actually astonishing what Wolf is able to do just with, you know, a f six paragraphs in the novel looking at the history and settling of America. I mean, it's, it's truly astonishing. And there is this real sense, as you're pointing out, Brandon, of America as this exceptional place, the city on the hill, the idea that America is actually just, uh, you know, not just a country on earth, it's actually its own kind of planet. Also, we have this digression in chapter one about the imaginary races, which is really a kind of fantasy way of writing about America. So we get a science fiction way of writing about America. We get a fantasy way of writing about America. And we also, I think, get, you know, the city on, on the hill is really religious 
imagery, almost kind of apocalyptic uh, Christian religious imagery. So even just having different ways of trying to envision what America is and to create a type of history around that is something that's happening in this book. And maybe this is a good point for me to say just a few more things about how Wolf is exploring American identity. Native Americans, as we have said many times, are all over really the beginning of this book, though they, they show up later in the book as well, but really, especially at the beginning of the book. We do also get immigrant experiences. We get specifically a lot about the Irish immigrant experience and a lot about the Jewish immigrant experience. Less detail, but we do also at the end get something about the Latin American immigrant experience as well. These are the workers that we encounter in the juice plant in chapter five. And although we don't get nearly as much of that as we do for the Irish and Jewish immigrants, I nonetheless think this is actually a really important part of the book. We do, as I said, also get this business about the imaginary races and civil rights. Uh, Wolf or Weir, maybe we should say, is envisioning uh, orange people or you know people with fantastical skin colors being welcomed into the local country club. At the same time, though, and this is something we did point out on a few episodes, it still interests me that Wolf never really engages with Black Americana in this book, even as he seems to engage with just about every other subset of Americanness. It is so strange to me. It's something that just seems like a glaring, I don't know, absence in the novel when we even have... Um, references to, you know, the Chinese wave of immigration. Aunt Olivia saying, you know, they're closer than you think. I don't think that's a, you know, a scare, a statement that's the result of some kind of scare. Um, yeah, there's there's all sorts of immigrants that have come to the U.S. We get, as we talked about in chapter five, this final closure almost on the American Indian story, which is that, well, maybe they're uh, missing from our broader culture, but we have native peoples from uh, S Central America and South America now immigrating and kind of they're present in our culture in a way that the Native Americans or the American Indian tribes are not present, the peoples, I should say. So yeah, there's, there's all of this all of these through lines woven in the novel about the wave of Irish immigration and how they might be represented in um, uh, American fiction or a small town in the Midwest. There's the same for the Chinese immigrant story. There's questions about the continuance of the first people's traditions in their, uh, you know, Central American and South American groups. Nothing really explicitly about about black culture or black America in this novel. So, um, you know, we can't ask Wolf about this now. Uh, the, that I think would be one question I would ask him. What was your approach to to leaving this out? Um, and was it just not in the purview of the schema of the novel? Is really another maybe a bigger question about the novel. Yeah, and I, I don't mean to imply that we're slighting the novel as if Wolf has some obligation to deal with this. It's simply something that stood out as an absence when it seems like thinking about American identity and different subsets of Americanness is a big part of the book. And also because the novel starts, or Weir's life, maybe we should say, starts 
In the midst of the Great Migration, when Black Americans are migrating from the South into the North, into places like Cashinsville, and you know, my sense as a Midwesterner is that even a small town like Cashinsville would, would have that as part of their story. But maybe the answer is simply that that wasn't the experience that Wolf had growing up in Peoria before his family moved to Houston, and that that's what he's thinking about here, and that's what he's drawing on in crafting this uh, this family saga slash memoir slash, um, I guess we'll talk next episode about what we think actually <laughs> is going on here. Um, so I think that's probably really, you know, the extent of the answer, but it does, it does stand out. Before we move on to talking about religion and also apocalypses, I want to say one more thing about the way that Wolf is engaging with American history here. And this is something that Wolf is doing in his capacity as an engineer, which is just to say that this book is obsessed with material culture and the change in that material culture over time. It's something I really admired about this book. Uh, we have, you know, the era of the chemistry set. We have the toys at McAfee's department store. Cars are used here as an indicator of when in the 20th century each chapter or you know different episodes in the story are, right? He uses the cars as a way of, of cluing us into when we are. We also get Aunt Arabella's ghost story, which is, I think, really about technological change in the 20th century. Also, the dishwasher in Weir's mansion. Like, this is an amazing element of Weir's mansion. He talks about this dishwasher a lot, particularly in the early parts of the book, and has this line about how no one has ever actually used the sink to wash a dish in this mansion. And also, I think, ultimately, the book is largely about how it's pretty cool that we can even make orange juice out of potatoes now, right? That that's, that's a material change in our culture in America in the middle of the 20th century or throughout the course of the 20th century. And as someone who is not really interested in cars or dishwashers for that matter, though I'm happy to live in a home that, that has one, I already spend enough time washing my family's dishes, but uh, I'm not into these things. I'm not into machines the way that, uh, well, I guess any mechanical engineer would be. But as a trained historian, this is something I really appreciate about what Wolf does. One, it's fantastic world building. It makes this world or, or you know, the world worlds, plural maybe, as Cashinsville is changing over time, really vibrant, just feel real, feel lived in. But it is also the story of the 20th century, I mean, really should be written from the perspective of how much our stuff and our material lifestyles have changed over time. And also from that, we can expand that to talk about how that change affects our society, affects our environment, affects our politics, intellectual culture, and so on. But Wolf, as an engineer here, has actually made this central in a way that I think is right, in a way that I think is really just some awesome historical writing. It suits him as a writer to to dig into the um, machinations of industrial America, of these huge factories, of really how incomprehensible it is to go to the grocery store and buy Tang, which was made in a factory, to just live in a world where you can do that without reflecting upon where it's coming from you know, what it's done to the town that that factory is in and so forth to, to question whether uh, progress as a kind of inherent cultural good 
is it really just the neutral form of change or is even maybe a negative? I mean, I want to quibble with you saying that that it's cool because I think the novel is explicitly raising the question of whether or not it's actually cool to be able to buy orange flavored potato water. You know, that, that is a core question of the novel. Right. And, um, you know, I will be returning to this uh, in uh, item D on our outline here, wealth, class, <laughs> and greed. So, yeah, that's in fact why I wanted to to end with that here on the uh, topic of America and Americanness. But uh, I think we should probably move into your first topic, Brandon, which is religion and metaphysics. And I know you're going to talk a little bit about alchemy as it shows up here. Yeah, I am taking a really different approach. I I, I think with looking at the apocalypse and death, I, I kind of did more of a the grouping of texts and seeing what they can tell us about the story or where Wolf's focus is. But with this uh, religion and metaphysics, I might monologue for a little bit. You're you're welcome to jump in at any time, and I and I hope that you do. Um, but this kind of got stuck in my craw here. The more I've reread this book, the more I think that piece is really caught up in religious and and numinous and metaphysical questions, even as it is grounded in a place and time, though time has strange properties for sure, and a material culture. You know, the, the novel, I think, is really urging us as readers to engage with abstract concepts like greatness, principles of change, which you've really brought up and introduced really well, Glenn, I think, um, and also magic. The novel even ends, as it starts perhaps, by raising the issue or the question of whether some kind of eternal salvation in the form of a Christian heaven, or I don't know, maybe in in the form of a Persian room (laughs) is is preferable, uh, or maybe even objectively good when compared to something like eternal recurrence, where eternal recurrence here, as it's used in the novel, is closer uh, to the Buddhist concept of the bardo, which is the intermediate state between death and rebirth in Buddhism. You know, in other words, I think you know, to, to kind of look at religion here before we get into metaphysics and alchemy, the end of peace explicitly juxtaposes a broadly lowercase o orthodox Christian metaphysics about what, it, what you need to do to get into heaven and this is found in Dan French's final Doherty story, that's juxtaposed with a broadly Taoist and maybe Buddhist spiritual vibe uh, that's at least as broad and syncretic, you know, in terms of an approach to Eastern philosophy and religion as Aunt Olivia's taste for chinoiserie is. This notion is found in the calling of Weir back into a particular point in his childhood with the use of this Chinese philosopher's pillow. So to me, religion in this novel, we talked a little bit about how uh, in the opening of the novel, we're dealing with the planet of America in a sort of Dantean configuration or order of the universe and this picture of Columbus and the way American exceptionalism is tied up with Christianity. That's all there. But religion to me is really centered on, is really brought to a point at the end of the novel where we're looking at this juxtaposed contrast and what is offered to Weir and what Weir chooses as a kind of uh, religious framework that uh, I'm going to get into in a little bit more, but I'll pause here to let you sort of comment if you wish. Yeah, I really like the way, Brandon, that you are, I think, weaving together already the multiple strands of 
religiosity and metaphysicality that we have in this book, that you're seeing the connections here between the way that we get Christianity and maybe specifically some apocalyptic Christian imagery here (laughs) in the book with also the very serious interest that we get in Chinese religions and Chinese philosophies through the character of Aunt Olivia. This is something that I had a hard time really making work, I think, for me in the book, which is, well, that's why we gave it to you here on the outline to, to figure out. And I'm, I'm excited to hear more. Well, I think, yeah, I mean, I have a lot more, so don't worry. Um, a strap in, I guess I should say, and hold on to your butts. There's there's <laughs> a thousand words left in my um, in my in my uh, talk here on on religion and and metaphysics. But I want to return to this concept of the bardo here and and the real focus on um, Eastern religion that I think this novel is engaged with. You know, the the novel ends on this note where Weir is called back into the bardo. I won't make that argument, but I think that that is the case here. Um, And I'm using Bardo for lack of a better word, but there is maybe a better phrase, which is Barry Mead's simulation of uh, the memory house, which is the phrase that Weir uses at some point. But we suspect, or I suspect at least, that Weir is going to be called back into this point in childhood and kind of relive his life or re-examine his life again until he's ready to be reborn and that he's completely missed this kind of exit sign that is Dan French's story. And and because this is the case, because Weir is sort of ignoring the actual religion, the actual metaphysics of Christianity, um, I think we can argue then that the novel's metaphysics, at least for Weir, might be steeped more in that syncretic Eastern philosophy or mysticism rather than classical Western metaphysics, you know, that are dealing with the soul or substance dualism. And this is even suggested by the conversation that Weir has with Dr. Black at the end of chapter four, uh, where Weir speaks maybe as a, as a true materialist with the kind of metaphysical bent. Um, this is a, quest, a conversation about metaphysics. Weir says this, and I'm quoting here, matter and energy cannot be destroyed, doctor, only transformed into one another. Thus, whatever exists can be transformed, but not destroyed. And this really suggests to me then that Weir doesn't even believe in a in a soul in this Western classical so, sort of way in the mode of substance dualism that he says even memories have a kind of life. And so I'm using metaphysics then here in the way that Weir does to suggest a, a spiritual order to the world that determines and organizes our place within a larger order of life, but then also clues us into the afterlife as well. And so there are two tracks of metaphysics in the novel. There's the one that most accords with the explicit metaphysical tack of matter not being transformed or destroyed. Um, And this is kind of alchemy and alchemical processes. Uh, I think that's the major metaphysical motif in the novel. I'll pause in a moment before I get into that. And then there's also questions raised like, what is the soul? What happens when we die? And in terms of metaphysics, I really just, you know, as I said, want to focus on on alchemy, how that relates to the the Eastern um, philosophies that we see engaged with in the novel. But yeah, I'll just pause here before I transition into alchemy. Uh, I don't know. I don't have any questions, Glenn. This is all a bit of a preface. Well, I do want to let listeners know that you know you have thrown down, maybe not quite a gauntlet here, but you have answered one of the questions that's on our outline for the Puzzles and Mysteries 
episode, or at least you've you've given some hints about what your answer is going to be. And in fact, it's the last question that we'll tackle in that episode, which is what is it that happens at the end? And and I guess also the second to last question, which is, hey, what the heck is actually going on in this novel? And I will just preview that conversation that we're going to have on the, the next episode by saying that I, I don't think that we need to make quite as clear of a distinction between the Bardo and maybe Christian ideas of the afterlife as as, as I think you're pitching here. But I will table any more conversation about that until <laughs> the next episode, because we need to go through a lot more puzzles and mysteries, I think, before we really start to get into that. But that can be a tease for for listeners for next episode. It will be. And I, and I, and I won't, um, I don't think I'll... I'll hammer too much on the Bardo. I do think that this novel is engaged with a kind of game that uses the language of the kind of classical Western metaphysics to describe um, maybe some Eastern metaphysics and philosophy that Weir uh, doesn't have the language to use. So he's stuck using language that he's familiar with. I am not going to get into that because that will take a lot of time and teasing out and and overtake the episode. Instead, let's return to alchemy here. (laughs) I want to start by uh, exploring an issue in the novel that I haven't been able to shake off. And Glenn, this might surprise you or not, but there is something that has remained with me as as a core problem of this text. While a lot of the other puzzles and mysteries, even stuff we'll talk about next episode, have, after reading the novel a few times, just kind of left me with a real sense of indifference. Like I'm not super interested in what IDR, which is that acronym that we don't have a meaning for in chapter one stands for. Um, Maybe I'd like to know. I still think it means identity ratio or something like that. But there's not just that, but a lot of things that I think when we were reading this novel on such a close level came up that when you just read the novel through, those kinds of issues just go away very quickly. But one issue does remain, as I've been saying, and it's the question that I'm thinking of here is the question that's led me to have to develop an interpretive framework for the novel. So if it does turn out, Glenn, that I've made some kind of major error here, or there's a major hole in my reasoning that I'm blind to, uh, something I hope you'll point out, or if another more observant listener or reader sees something I've missed and tells me about it, that's fine. I I will warn you, though, and say that I might end up walking around uh, like shuffling my feet and humming the... Charlie Brown Christmas song to myself for a whole day. Um, But that's okay. I mean, I'd rather broaden my horizon here. The question I have is this, in any event, what does Weir mean when he says that smart is the central figure of the novel? You know, in our recap episodes, I suggested that this was Weir's joke about page count or wolves, maybe. But that's not satisfying to me, nor, nor to you, I suspect, Glenn. No, although I think it is right. And I do think that it is a joke that Wolf was was making for sure. But yeah, I mean, I think that it is a question that has us thinking about what is the point of the story? You know, we don't even meet this character until really we are in the middle part of the book. And so we've had a lot of story up until the point we even meet him. And so, yeah, then the question is just, well, what is this story about? If Smart, if Julia Smart is the central figure, what is the plot of this story? And why does it begin at this at this birthday party where Bobby Black is injured and, and, and then eventually dies from those injuries? Why does the story start with that if Julia Smart is really the central figure in the story? 
Well, I have an answer for you. You're in luck. Uh, and I would love to take you on my harebrained uh, journey of reasoning and lateral <laughs> thinking that led me to this conclusion. It's just would make for poor conversation. But I think that my answer dovetails very nicely with how you concluded um, some of your thoughts about America and, and the process of change. What makes smart then the central character of peace is that smart is the premier agent of change in Cashinsville, but also in Weir's life. Weir says of Smart on page 152 that, quote, Smart was the first major change to take place within my memory, equivalent for me to the building of the new bridge at Oak Street. Julius Smart was an improvement, but I sometimes felt even then that he had improved my home out of existence. So the next question we have to look at then is why does change matter so much, both in terms of Smart's role in Weir's life, but also as peace is an examination of, say, I don't know, Eastern philosophy or spirituality, you know, my reading of the novel here. So let me first say that I'm no expert in Eastern philosophy, including Taoism, Buddhism, and Confucianism. Um, these things that I'll kind of lean on a little bit as a crutch. A lot of what I'll be referencing here uh, comes from an Alan Watts book called The Two Hands of God, a book that I'm certain Wolf read, and I can make an argument for if we feel we need to. Um, But then also there was another book that Wolf would have had access to around the time of his writing this book called A Source Book in Chinese Philosophy. This is by uh, compiled and edited and uh, comments by a man named Wing Tse Chan. I've chosen these books, as I said, because they would have been available to Wolf at the time he was writing Peace and maybe working out some of these questions or um, themes of the novel. Also, I filled out some of my ignorance with Wikipedia, which we all know sometimes can act as an ignorance generator. So for you experts out there, I hope to cause no offense (laughs) with what I'm working with. But let's return to change here, right? The principle of change or that things are in constant state of change is a foundational principle of, for instance, the I Ching and the philosophers inspired by that, including those who worked in um, the field of Taoism, Confucianism, and so forth. Alchemy is a big part of this. Also in Chinese philosophy, the changing of base metals into gold in order to either, you know, create gold or more likely seek out some sort of form of immortality with the philosopher's stone. Now, much like in ancient Greek philosophy and the Western occult sciences, Eastern philosophy and its religion also have alchemical traditions, including an understanding of the elements. In fact, within peace, in in Wolf's pastiche of Andrew Lang's fairy tales, is a mapping of the elements onto Aunt Olivia's courtiers, where fire and metal or gold are both associated with Julius Smart. Um, you know, so one of the scholars who's worked on Wolf, Robert Borsky, uh, has an essay on peace called The Devil Has Due. He's also noticed that the elements are in a really strange way mapped onto the broader novel. He suggests a schema that the alchemical elements function as a kind of mapping on not just of Aunt Olivia suitors, but also the characters found in the waiting room at the beginning of the novel, that these elements have colors associated with them and so forth. And then Borsky ultimately associates these alchemical components and colors with stages of taking the Eucharist and the transformations associated with that. 
I do think that Borsky is onto something here because my sense of the novel's schema is not so different from Borsky's, but I think that the alchemical, the way the elements function in the novel is better associated with the phases of change that are found in the traditional Chinese seasonal schema called Wuxing. Now, the elements are in Wuxing are if we start where the book starts, water, which is associated with winter, then wood, which is associated with spring, fire with summer, and then earth is this transitional period between summer and fall, and then metal and autumn, where metal is mostly associated with the metal gold, which is, you know, as it turns out, the, four, the name of the fourth chapter of the novel. This novel then can be read as a cycle through these periods, these seasons, which also correspond with periods of life. Water is associated with old age and rebirth. The novel begins and ends with this and with the season of winter. Then we move into spring, which is when Alden's birthday is, and his child the summer he spent with Aunt Olivia and her suitors makes up chapters two and three, with fires mentioned a lot in chapter two, and then the color orange being kind of predominant in chapter three. We also see in chapter three that extension of summer where Julius Smart is introduced as the alchemist who gins gold from the earth where the Chinese word for gold is jin, J-I-N. That might be a little pun there. The fourth chapter is named after the ultimate alchemical metal. Um, I also want to say that the planet associated with gold in Wuxing is what we call Venus. And we have uh, the Venus de Milo brought up in this book and uh, some questions about that in chapter four. And then the final chapter is back to this final period of life and rebirth. And so all this alchemical stuff is actually caught up with, you know, questions of immortality for sure. Should we die or be reborn? Um, but they're also caught up in these periods of changes that are thought to be good. That's, you know, the change in the story is sold to us as being progress and good change. But it's unclear to me, as we see in Weir's comments about SMART, whether the changes have been for the good, say industrial farming and so forth, not to mention whether any progress is made. Um, as we see in the discussion of the automobile, and whether we've been kind of improved out of a good life. Now, one of the last times we see change explicitly mentioned in the novel is on page 211. This is all in the Orb 2012 edition, where Weir is thinking about how Aunt Olivia's house has changed into the library. Yet, he thinks there must still be things that remain the same about it, like the attic and the elevator that goes to the attic and so on. But Weir at this point recalls his childhood in his aunt's house and how he used to go out on the roof and look out at the endless sky. And this is what he says. And it has struck me that the sky must be the only thing left unchanged since my childhood. I'm at the end here, so let me just sum up what I'm saying as it relates to, say, particularly the religious uh, claims or doctrines of religion or metaphysics that I'm talking about. All I'm saying is this, that if you read peace with all of this in mind, peace becomes a novel that is a meditation on the nature of change, on what phases dominate our lives and when, and whether or not we should consider change as progress or as an inherent good. In other words, we should ask the question that arises again and again in Eastern philosophical texts. Can good flow 
from those who force change by abandoning a kind of righteous path. In this case, alchemy. Is, is, are these alchemical changes, the forced change of one thing to another that ignores the limits of nature? You know, is alchemy in that way this kind of metaphysical metaphor for industrialization and all its ill effects? When we think about seasons as a metaphor for change over time, a big part of that is the cyclical nature of seasons, right? That there, there certainly is an order to the seasons that progresses through the year, but then it repeats, and then it repeats again and again and again. And when we're talking about that, or frequently when people are using that as a type of metaphor, one of the, I think, underlying values implicit in using that as a type of metaphor is to stress harmony and adaptation in the face of cyclical change, right? That there are, are patterns, there's repetition, and that we change as the environment is changing, and then we change back. But the type of change that is happening in Cashinsville in this story, and then in America as well, is change that has nothing to do with harmony and is not about the repetition of a cycle. It's change that breaks the thing and makes a new thing instead, right? And so hearing you talk about this, this presentation's been fantastic, Brandon, hearing you talk about this, you know, to me, that just immediately suggests that one of the things that Wolf is doing here is holding up those two different types of change and asking us to compare them, maybe even to make a judgment about whether one of them is good one or bad, or one, you know, one of, whether one of them is better than the other. And this does seem to be what Julia Smart represents in Cashinsville is the type of change that breaks the thing and brings in something new that may or may not be better. And so I think there's a sense of lamentation here. And this maybe then answers the question that I just posed, which is, if this is about Smart, or if Smart is the central character in this story, why does the story start at Weir's childhood? And it's because that's the thing he's lamenting, is that world of his childhood, which is gone now. And it's gone because of Julius Smart and, and also because of people like him. I think that's exactly right. I do think this book is prodding us to make a judgment, not just to ask whether the you know, traditional Western Judeo-Christian moral framework has anything to say about the Eastern framework, whether those juxtaposed, uh, you know, are, are good, one is better than the other, but to ask us really, and, and like, this is a, a big thing in the novel, you know, these themes of greatness, what is a great man? These questions are really core to a lot of Eastern philosophical texts. And I think when we get to wealth and greed, we'll have a little bit more to say about what Weir or Wolf thinks about the way we frame greatness. In fact, you know, part of what I said earlier at the top of this section about how we're is using one kind of language, uh, Western, traditional Western metaphysical language, including Christianity and the moral framework of that, to describe what happened, what, you know, is going on with the phases of the Wu Jing and the way Eastern philosophy asks certain questions. That is a kind of problem of language, that the language that Weir has isn't sufficient to ask the questions that he's asking. And I think the same thing, 
the that problem is a core problem of Weir's, and he's not even able to phrase things in terms of moral questions due maybe to the way he was raised, due to um, you know the trauma in his past or whatever, but that he doesn't have the language to frame this a lot of what's going on in this novel in terms of moral questions. And that leaves us as readers being forced to confront our feelings about what's going on in Weir's life. And it's it's a really brilliant technique, I think. Oh, I, absolutely. It's a brilliant technique. And I do think you've really hit on something here. But I think also we are still only maybe halfway through thinking about religion and metaphysics here, just in the <laughs> sense that the next item on the outline is really adjacent to this, which is, hey, what's happening with all of these images of the apocalypse or you know, apocalyptic landscapes and also the emphasis over and over again on death and what happens when we die. So uh, walk us through you know, where we find this in the book and what do you think is going on with that as well, Brandon? Uh, this is a really big topic. I'm not quite sure I have any different thesis, so to speak, than what I just kind of went through. But these are another really important series of motifs in the novel. And what I found was that they are linked together by a common element. And that element is magic or a very specific conception of magic. I'm going to get into that after looking a little bit at the way that apocalyptic imagery and death uh, function as motifs within peace. You know, in our, in our recap episodes, we did point out a few places where this apocalyptic imagery appeared. Um, the clearest picture of some kind of apocalypse is found pretty early on in the novel on page 38. Young Weir is at his grandfather's house with his mother while his father has stayed home hunting. And he snuck down into the parlor where he's found the candlelit Christmas tree and the presents beneath it. And Weir and his grandfather have a conversation about the gifts that his grandfather intends to give to Weir's mother and also Mab, uh, Grandfather Elliot's housekeeper and nurse. As an aside, I think Weir's grandfather has recently had a, a stroke. There's uh, a sentence about the grandfather dragging his left leg. In any event, after this conversation, Grandfather Elliot sends Weir to bed. And this is what Weir writes in response to this memory. He says, and as if by magic, it seemed to me that I found myself in bed again, the old house swaying in silence as though it were moored to the universe by only a thread of smoke on the stove. Yeah, now this isn't the apocalyptic stuff, which is nestled between this as if by magic clause, and then it seemed to me clause by a series of parenthetical clauses. And this is what Weir says about this kind of sense of apocalypse as catastrophe, as natural catastrophe may be, not as we see in the book of Revelation. For I believe that America is the land of magic, and that we, we now past Americans, were once the magical people of it, waiting now to stand to some unguessable generation of the future, as the nameless pre-Mycenaean tribes did to the Greeks, ready, at a word, each of us now, to flit piping through the groves ungrown, our women ready to haunt as Lamii the rose-red ruins of Chicago and Indianapolis, when they are little more than earthen mounds, when the heads of the trees are higher than the 125th floor. What jumps out to me about this passage is the sense that nature will overtake all that we as a species have accomplished in terms of the way we use and dole out and attribute our material resources. 
And not only that, but our own age will come to an end and will be as legendary and mythologically significant as we now think of the ancient Greeks and as they viewed their ancient past as well. And this sense of nature superseding our efforts, uh, our, our attempts to keep nature at bay, is really one of the common threads uh, found in each chapter of the novel. We see this with Hannah's dream that water might return to Sugar Creek someday. We see that Sugar Creek has run dry, which allows for the treasure hunt to take place in chapter four. And we see this notion at the end of the novel that if something goes wrong at the juice plant with the seeming machine, pretty quickly a creek would form within the factory. But this creek wouldn't be made of water, but of you know orange-flavored potato juice. <laughs> the catastrophe would be just as bad, though. And so what we see with this apocalyptic imagery is that um, our efforts to contain nature, the way that we have, is really an act of hubris. It's, it's an overstepping of our relationship with nature. I agree completely. I'm going to talk about this in the, the next section a little bit as well. But this is something that we have been tracking for a long time, really, since uh, our earliest stories here on the podcast that we've been covering on the podcast. Wolf, as an environmentalist and thinking about the natural environment as something that needs to be protected from from us, uh, from our desire to master it, to control it, and also to change it, to harness it, to use it for our own purposes. Uh, really, maybe we should just say to break it, right? This is something that Wolf has been concerned about since his earliest stories, and it is indeed all over this book, and it is in particular here in this apocalyptic imagery that is often very much about the descriptions of landscapes that have become broken in some way. We see this even more explicitly in in the way that Aunt Olivia describes, you know, our relationship or her relationship with the far, far future uh, when she's on her expedition with Alden and Professor Peacock. She describes humans as grazing animals and basically says that we're going to act as all grazing animals have done in the past. We're going to act in a way that causes our own extinction. She says there will be no people left you know, to think about the past in the way we're doing it now. Um, that grazing animal creature, she says, spreads and spreads until it's the most common creature of all. And then there's not going to be anything left for it to graze upon. Uh, and Aunt Olivia's reasoning here, of course, ignores concepts of rationality that perhaps ought to guide or balance our own sense of self-preservation as a species, balance our relationship with nature. But she definitely like brings this sensibility to the table that because we're animals, rationality might be an illusion. Um, also, this is the section where we see maybe some of that play with language um, that I talked about earlier, but ultimately she comes to this conclusion that we ignore that we need to live in balance with our environment in order to kind of have the most material goods. I'm not convinced of this argument, but it is aligned with the sense of apocalypse that we see within the novel. And then we get later that broken landscape as the dream that Alden has when he's happy and 25 years old. And even though this is the case, 
we see him investigate this manicured garden that is beautiful, but not natural, but that much within it is broken. There's just death inside of it, the dead bird. And even when he thinks he's found this living creature, it turns out to be a broken paper lantern, another bit of kind of uh, Chinese imagery here. And, and when we came across this passage, we discussed it as having the sense of apocalypse. And we were right to think so, as this dream, I think, demonstrates the degree to which even our interference with nature, our manipulation of it to suit our own ends, maybe even aesthetic ends, is itself a futile act in the long run. That even this moment of beauty we create, first of all, needs constant tending to so as not to die. Um, it's a created ecosystem in need, in need of human nurturing. And that means it's fleeting. It has no real durability. Um, and yeah, so I think that that's kind of the tension of apocalyptic imagery that we see in this novel, that our meddling isn't durable, it's not sustainable, and nature will incur upon our labor and will ultimately be victorious. Though, I don't know, maybe we have to resort to magic at times to tame it, but I'll talk about that in a bit. Wolf has certainly been skeptical about our ability to survive ourselves in other stories. And so I think that uh, next episode, I think we'll wander into talking more about Aunt Olivia's prediction and tying that up with this imagery of American cities just buried under you know generations of of dirt of geological change. Maybe I should should say uh, I think we'll also end up talking about the lifespan of elm trees in order to to think about some of these issues because I do think that this is definitely a kind of uh, mystery here that uh, we'll need to talk about. We certainly will. I, let's uh, let's move on to talking about death now. Uh, I feel like I've been monologuing for an hour, and I feel bad about it. But let's let's talk about death so we can wrap up this topic, and I'll tie it together with magic at the end. So the first passage in this novel that explicitly mentions death, or I think it's the first passage, is is found on page eleven, very early on in the novel. It's a metaphor, but it's a really striking one that actually serves as a mini motif for the first chapter. Weir is describing a warmish wind on a soggy winter day, uh, and he sees a rose bush that still has roses in it. And this is how he describes it. He says, and indeed, some of the roses still show, like mothers holding up their dead infants. Now, this is one of the first images of death that we come across in the novel, as I've said. It's followed by the mention of the Lamiae, who were uh, feminine monsters that devoured children. We have mention of Alden's Uncle Joe's death as a child uh, very early on. We get the Banshee story. I'll pause here now to read the description of that particular monster as it ties together, uh, I think, both death and the apocalyptic imagery as it relates to natural catastrophe with maybe some hard kinds of magic as well. So let me read this description of banshees too, uh, in service of death. Banshees are, according to Weir, according to Hannah maybe, spirits of midwives that have killed the baby because someone gave gold to them to do it, that it might not inherit. And never a day can they, the banshee, rest until whatever land it was is under the sea. You know, and in this story, we have the Molly character at the end of the banshee tale, uh, looking like a banshee as described by Hannah or Kate, even though Jack and Molly have no children, something very dark there. And then finally, in this first chapter with death, 
apart from Bobby Black's death, Hannah tells us that when she went to see the Indians with her father, it seemed to her that the Indian woman that she was in the tent with was holding a dead infant. And listen, Glenn, I have to say here for how thick this imagery is laid on and how often it recurs in chapter one. I was expecting there to be some kind of revelation about Weir in the novel regarding the loss of a child, but that doesn't really materialize. No, it doesn't. And we spent a ton of time talking about that in chapter one and also chapter two. I went back and and listened to the discussion episodes that we did for those chapters because, uh, as you said at the top of the episode... We're different people than we were when we started. I couldn't remember what we had said and what we had talked about. Uh, we were obsessed with with that imagery, and we thought for sure that that was going to develop into something in the book. But it's imagery that just goes away as Weir himself uh, ceases to be a child, which I do find interesting. Yes, and I think perhaps we'll have to address some of that in our in our next episode. And there's there's like way more stuff about death in the book. This book is literally haunted with ghosts. Weir has outlived many people that are important to him in one way or another, at least we're led to believe that. You know, the death of Aunt Olivia is more impactful to you know, in terms of word count in the novel than Weir's mother's death or Bobby Black's death. We never even get a reference to Weir's father's death. But it's in reference to Aunt Olivia's death that we get that death is something that is contrary to everyday experience, but really only the first time that this happens. This is mentioned on page 88, if you're following along. The imagery that follows that sentiment, uh, something we called, I think, Aunt Olivia's eulogy, is very tied up with Weir's dream of being 25, but also Weir's interpolated passage uh, of the Necronomicon that closes chapter four. We get bones and sand and faded rags. And recall in that passage of the Necronomicon, there's also this hint of magic or at least rituals used to perform to raise the dead. There's the mention of the dog star there with the Necronomicon, who is Aunt Olivia, and the spirit of him who leans between the moon and the dog star, which is the sun. But I don't know who's representing the sun in this novel. I don't mean to like bring up all these puzzles and mysteries. They don't interest me that much, as I said. But there's all this stuff here. And the point that I'm making is that death is all over this novel and is explicitly then tied to magic in one passage as the apocalypse is connected explicitly with magic in the passage I read earlier. Now, this passage is on page 117, right before the story of Ben Yahya, which we know is about Weir, which ends in a haunted city. Uh, so this, this, this passage then is, is sandwiched between the Ben Yahya story and Weir thinking about seeing shapes in the clouds as he's on his way to meet Margaret Lorne for the first time during the affair of the Chinese egg. But here's what Weir says. There's no wonder, no amazement, Quite like that felt when something supposed for amusement's sake to be magical and mysterious actually manifests the properties imagination has assigned it in jest. When the toy pistol shoots real bullets or when lovers from down the street fling themselves into death's bright arms from lover's leap. So I'll admit that this is a tenuous connection here, maybe for the argument I'm trying to make, but I do think it's no accident here that all of this is tied together like apocalyptic imagery with this sense of magic, as is Weir's journey to the haunted city, as is the motif of alchemy within the metaphysical schema of the novel. So what's the point of all of this? Well, 
In the Two Hands of God by Alan Watts, which is uh, a syncretic text itself about um, the grounds of experience that don't require quite the kind of moral energy we sometimes put into it. Alan Watts refers to Arthur Machen's story, The White People, in order to make an argument that the idea of magic, and it's 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 magic just in the way that Weir describes it in this story, where we're Something does what you don't expect it to do, even though, I don't know, if you came across it, you'd be really put off by it. That that kind of magic is really an expression of evil, true evil in the world. It's of turning the world upside down. Uh, it's a topsy-turvy world, we might say, as, as Sherry use, Gold uses that language to describe the power of her own magic ring. And there's this passage then that Watt cites from the white people that maybe sums up what I've been driving at and why this book that is so laden with all of this dark imagery is also overlaid maybe as many readers have picked up on with the sense of uh, sinister menace and malintent. Uh, and we'll probably have some space to talk about this more in our next motif as it relates to Chinese philosophy and the movement toward apo the apocalypse and death. But I want to end my exploration of these motifs with this brief passage from the white people uh, as it's found in Alan Watts, The Two Hands of Gods, about magic. This is what Machen writes. It is above all sorcerers who use the material life as instruments to obtain their infinitely wicked ends. And let me tell you this. Our higher senses are so blunted. We are so drenched in materialism that we should probably fail to recognize real wickedness, you know, as magic, if we encountered it. And this passage almost feels like a writing prompt for peace in my mind. Wolf seems to be saying, we are on the way to ruin and death, but within the mundanity and framing of our own lives, the everyman, as Weir kind of portrays himself as, may be too blunted to see it, much less find a way to change or stop it. And, and, and I think this kind of talk is maybe better suited in looking at, you know, wealth and greed as a motif in, in the novel. Yeah, that's a great segue into our next topic. And we were, I think, getting pretty dangerously close to having to answer the biggest puzzle and mystery question of all, which we are, <laughs> are uh, deliberately saving until next episode. But I'm so glad you you read this passage from Mackin here. I mean, just, uh, I guess I'm glad that we're going to get to do a Mackin story over on Elder Sign later this year. It's not the white people, which is actually probably something that we would have to do as a, a bonus series on Patreon, just because that's an incredibly long, it's really a, a novella. But uh, I love Mackin so much. I'm excited at the, the tease you've just given me there. But I do think that you're you're onto something here. I think this does feel, yeah, very much like a writing prompt for peace. So, yeah, let's go talk about, I, I guess, wickedness and and evil in this in this novel. And we will actually be talking about you know greed, which I think we all agree is something that is wickedness or or evil. Certainly, we can look at some ways where it's presented that way in the book. But I do want to start really by thinking about the way that wealth and class are depicted in peace. And earlier, I had suggested that one way of of understanding this novel is to read it as a type of family saga, uh, by which I mean exploring the generations of a family as uh, they navigate all sorts of you know change over time. And this is, I think, maybe a, a particularly American type of novel writing. All of the big examples that I can think of writers who do this are Americans. James Michener is probably the most famous of them. 
piece is certainly not following the James Michener model of doing this, where it's like a collection of novellas about different generations of the family. But nonetheless, you know, this novel is telling us about different generations of this family in a real disjointed way, but giving us a sense of the rise and fall of the Weir family, its merger into the smart family in some sense, and its relationship with other important families in town. But there's another way of looking at the way that Wolf handles all of that, and that is to think of peace as a kind of upstairs-downstairs story, which is classically a type of story about the people who own the big house and live in the big house and the people who just work in the big house, though they also usually live in the big house too, just, you know, downstairs is the idea. They live in the basement <laughs> as, uh, is, is what, we're, what we mean there. And I'll give some examples of, of how we can see this. So certainly the story is about Weir and it's about his family and his, his social network, maybe we could say. But we see immediately that Weir is closer with his housekeeper than he is with his own parents, that he remembers Hannah more fondly, I think, than he remembers his, his own father, for sure. I think even maybe more fondly than he remembers his own mother. We see that his maternal grandfather seems to be sexually involved with his domestic help, or at least wants to be sexually involved with his domestic help. Weir even tells us more about the Doherty's as a family than he tells us about his own parents. And he seems really, really pleased at the end of the book when he learns that Dan French is a Doherty on his mother's side. Like, this is something that really, really excites him. It's as if he's discovered a long-lost, you know, sibling or long-lost cousin or something like this. We also get a lot about Olivia's household. We see that she has a variety of maids when she's living as a single person. And then when she and Julia Smart get married, Olivia even gets a, a live-in chef who is someone who is still important in Weir's life decades later. And then moving away from thinking about this as really a kind of upstairs-downstairs story where we're talking about or thinking about domestic servants and the wealthy people that they work for, uh, zooming out to the town of Cashinsville more largely, one place where we see class really come up is the the seating for the summertime concerts in chapter two is unofficially arranged by class status with you know the affluent members of the community getting the best seats by just some kind of, you know, default, right? That just, there's no official arrangement for this. This is just the way that people behave. People who are not the affluent members of this community just know that they shouldn't sit there, that the best seats are not for them. Uh, and then another instance that we get of this a little bit later in the book is that there's a clear hostility toward management at the juice plant. And we even have Weir wondering about slash tires when he and uh, another executive uh, visit the, the dive bar where many of the blue collar workers at the plant get drinks after work. And so I think that there is really underlying all of this story. I would never say that this is a central part of the book, but I think underlying the book is certainly a lot about class structure and about the way that different classes even have different family relationships and different social networks. The way that they interact with each other is actually quite different. In fact, another example that we might have of this is the visit to the Lorne farm during the affair of the, the Chinese egg. It's when you put it like that, when you really highlight the story or highlight these elements of the novel, like it feels like you could just 
read the novel uh, and have it be a novel of two, like a really interesting novel of two families or of one man's reflection on one family that was really important to him and the way they impacted the town that he grew up in, which is the Doherty's. And then his own family who kind of has this uh, riches to rags story, the kind of reverse trajectory of the American dream. And we see them kind of like meeting in the middle at different points. And it's just, it's really amazing. I mean, this is, this is a really, really clear and developed series of moments in the novel, the way that, I don't know, maybe even the middle class is established in the US is what the story being told is through particularly the Doherty's and the Weir's. And then the Doherty's being the one at the end of the novel who give Weir this kind of way out from the cycle uh, of Bardo or Purgatory or whatever that he's that he's caught in, and he ignores it. But yeah, at least half the novel is about the Doherty family, right? It is. And something that really struck me on my rereading of the book, just from page one to page end uh, over a handful of days, is that even before we actually really meet Doherty Doherty at Blaine's, we actually already learned that one of Olivia's maids is Mrs. Doherty. And I'm not sure who that is. I'm not sure if that's the wife of the Doherty who is the the hostler for Stuart Blaine or possibly his mother. That's that's un, unclear. I suspect it's actually his his wife. But just that really jumped out to me as showing us this close relationship between the Weir family and the Doherty family. And of course, also, you know, the Blaines are connected in this as well. Uh, maybe we should also talk about the the Green family, this family that that rents their land from the Weirs, but they they farm it. They work as farmers, but rent this land from the Weirs. Members of that family also are actually working for Olivia as domestic servants as well, like uh, you know, hired out on a you know uh, for for a cash day's labor or something like that. And so, yeah, there's a lot of detail here. Uh, just in the same way that there's so much detail about the material world, about what types of products people have, what types of tools they are using, what types of vehicles they have, where food comes from, where juice comes from, and so on. There is also a lot about who is doing the work, uh, who owns land, how do they own land, what can happen with that land, and what are those relationships like. And in fact, that's, I think, a pretty good transition into talking about Stuart Blaine uh, as an incredibly terrible and greedy person who, well, one, (laughs) maltreats his workers at this horrible dinner party that I'm so glad I never actually had to go to, though. I feel traumatized by that dinner party nonetheless. Uh, But specifically along these lines of thinking is thinking about Blaine as this person who used, this banker, we should say, who used the depression to dispossess farmers and then profit off of the misfortune of those farmers. I mean, he's just a truly despicable character. It's Put into contrast or maybe into comparison uh, with how the Weirs made their money, how Cashinsville got settled, and how Julius Smart ended up changing Cashinsville. All of this, I mean, Blaine is this just clear example of of just this, this kind of man hobbled and 
and frozen by his own greed. He doesn't have any relationships with anybody. He's disfigured. Um, he's, you know, he is kind of this demon figure that we see in, in Morister's marvels of science. You know, he's kind of this clear example of it. And he's gleeful about his cleverness. And again, this is this kind of way in which this story does have elements from it's a wonderful life, you know, taken from it. Um, I think that might've been another prompt of, of, of Wolf's as well. But Wolf was savvy enough to know that it's the Blaine, it's the Blaine's who win, you know, it's not the Jimmy Stewart characters. Uh, it's, it's really the, the Blaine's who win in the end, who, who kind of shape the world around them with their greed, even as they become more and more closed off from the world. They seek to control it in, in, in ways that are just evil. And the way it's so important, especially for my approach to the novel, to recognize that the way that Blaine got his wealth, his family got their wealth, was ill-gotten. And they didn't do anything good with it. What did the Blaines do to improve Cashinsville, to change Cashinsville, to do anything other than use their wealth to accumulate more wealth? They cheated the Indians, you know, out of the land. They robbed the farmers of their land. And where is Blaine at the end of the novel? Well, he's happy, but he's a demon. Yeah, and he's not even good at being rich, right? Like he's not using his wealth to have awesome hobbies or do cool things, like cool selfish things. I mean, let alone being a philanthropist or anything like that. I mean, it was something that he tells us when we meet him again in chapter four that happened, you know, since the last time we had seen him is that he sold his big house and moved further out in town and is now living in a much more modest Tudor house with only one servant. And he tells us that he did that, you know, that his initial motivation for doing that was for appearances because he didn't want to run into like mob type of trouble, like angry mob type of trouble during the depression. He wanted to give off the appearance of being less wealthy than he actually was. But then he says, but it turned out what I discovered is that actually I could have a lot more money living this way because it was so expensive to maintain that mansion with the carriages and all of the domestic staff and so on. And so for him, having the money isn't even about having awesome stuff. It's just about having the money. And he tells us this again. He gives us this whole speech about how being rich and getting richer and richer all the time is a type of art form and that he has a responsibility to practice that art form for the sake of that art form. I mean, it's it's despicable. There's, I think, a really interesting way in which Wolf gives us a shorthand for cluing us in that Stuart Blaine is evil, and it's about his relationship with books. And this is where Stuart Blaine is a book collector, but not a book reader, right? So he's got this very nice Tudor house that has this fireproof secret room, you know, behind a bookshelf in it where he keeps all of these rare books that he's bought just for the sake of collecting them. He does not read them. He has no interest in reading them, doesn't seem to know much about the contents of them, just knows about them as material objects. And this is happening in a, a chapter where we get the other side of that coin represented for us in the character of Lou Gold, who also has a real relationship with books and maybe also has some questionable morality here. But I think one of the ways that Wolf wants us to recognize that Lou Gold is someone we should like 
and think of as good is that his relationship with books is the right type of relationship with books, that he loves to read them and he loves to write them, that he cherishes them. And he also understands that books are not meant to be kept behind a a secret door and a fireproof case, that they're meant to be sent out into the world and used and enjoyed by people. I think that there's a real contrast there, uh, just the way that Wolf is thinking about greed, but using books to tell us, you know, whose greed is good and whose greed is is bad, or whose, you know, whose search for money is actually greed versus whose search for money is actually about caring for their their middle class family. Yeah, I mean, there is the question of the human skin book, right? The cult of gold, but <laughs> you know, but but I think you're absolutely right because gold, though he's a forger, he's not actually out to fool or defraud people, even though that's his business. His justification for it is like an appeal to some kind of Jungian unconscious that what he's doing is kind of recovering some sort of forgotten truth that needs to be restored, you know, even if he's forging Amanda Ross books or something like that. He wants to give people a gift, essentially, with what he's doing, even though the morality of it is wrong. It's not evil in the way that Blaine is defrauding people and taking advantage of them and and using his ill-gotten gains to like hoard instead of to do anything good at all. And and yeah, it's it's just so fascinating. I mean, I think we the same thing could almost be said of of Julius Smart, whose type of good who brought the factory to Cashinsville is met with nothing but critiques throughout the novel, even in the in the carnival story early on, um, when, in the middle of the book, when you know the woman's complaining about farming and factories and how they're not good jobs, and it's because of people like Smart we see in the fifth chapter uh, that farming has become not a good job, you know, and that the twenty seven year old woman who can't have kids because two people need to work now to <laughs> make a living, you know, and that this is the type of place that she can get a job at. You know, there's nothing but critiques about the sort of thing that Smart has done um, in search of what? Like, what is even good about Tang? Well, I think the answer is nothing. <laughs> By those, some, I don't know. It's still around. Some people, some people might enjoy the taste of Tang. I was big into it in high school. Yeah, we had a little, little Tang. Well, it was middle school. It was middle school. It was eighth grade. We got into Tang for some reason. <laughs> I like the phrase "we got into Tang." Is uh, never thought I would hear that, but I, I think you're, you're right to bring up Smart here. I want to talk about the the plant uh, a little bit later, but just to think even about his motives for the choices that he's making when we meet him, and 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 then when we get his ghost story, we see him as someone who's just graduated from college and is looking for a job. He needs to find a job, so he's traveling around Middle America looking for employment, and he's then also motivated by a desire to run his own small business, which I think is, you know, for for Wolf is probably really what the American dream is, is to own your own small business. That's something we've, we've talked about in this book previously. And that's the motive that we see him 
operating on, you know, right when we meet him. That's what has brought him to Cashinsville, right? There was a, a druggist, a pharmacist going out of business. He had saved up enough money to put down some collateral or to have some collateral for, you know, in order to secure a loan from the bank, maybe Stuart Blaine's bank, in order to take over that business, to purchase that business from the pharmacist who's retiring, Bledsoe. And that seems like a perfectly healthy I want to have a place in the world and satisfy my material needs and maybe have a family eventually type of financial motivation. He also then marries into money and presumably actually uses Olivia's money to start the the juice plant. But that motivation has to just be about greed because he's already got a good place in the world, has married into someone who's going to inherit at least a little bit of wealth, certainly has a home that is not, you know, being paid off to the bank, the home that is owned outright already, and so on, that he's already got an upper middle class type of lifestyle when he marries Olivia. And so what more does he really need, right? And so I think we do probably need to classify his motivation even to start the juice plant as a type of of unhealthy or a type of wicked, even maybe a type of evil greed. And I think that there are two other characters we should think about as being greedy, people who are negatively impacted by greed. I don't know that Julia Smart was negatively impacted by, impacted by that greed. But I think we can read Tilly that way, right? We don't know enough about Tilly to understand exactly why he's a mad scientist, but it seems to me that he's doing it for the money, right? That he's selling all of these bizarre drugs that will have terrible consequences for people. He's selling these things to carnies, well, to sell it, right? For extra extra money. I don't have any sense that there's some kind of tragic reason that he needs extra money or something like that, though that may be the case. You know, that may actually be motivated by some particular health problem that his young son has, that his son dies from. But that's not clear in the text at all. And I really feel like Tilly is just motivated by greed. And then suffers for it. In fact, I think that we're meant to understand that the death of Tilly's wife and son is actually growing out of this greed. It's because he's a mad scientist that this happens in some way. It's not that he's a mad scientist because he's trying to save them or something like that, though there could be arguments for that. But then the other character I think we need to consider here under the topic of greed is Lois, right? Lois suffers great harm as Weir says, because she wants to go find this treasure that doesn't really exist, just this this thing that that Lou Gold has made up in this uh, this forged diary. But Lois is clearly motivated by greed in a way that seemed to really come out of nowhere. It didn't seem like it was growing out of the character that we had, you know, gone to Milicek's with. But of course, we don't know a lot about her at that point, and so this must have been a component of her personality even at that time. And so, yeah, I think there are lots of places where we just see in this book, one, that that greed can undo people on a, on a personal level and undo individuals, but that, yes, also it is terrible for communities when people act uh, out of greed as a motivation. It's also terrible for Weir, you know, whether or not Weir is evil in the way that we're talking about evil now. You can see why he's left without any kind of moral reasoning or kind of left rudderless in an ethical situation. He admires Blaine more than any of the suitors. And and I, I want to emphasize here, these are like father figures to Weir. These are the men who shaped Weir's perception of what it means to be an adult male in the world. Uh, it's 
Blaine. And you can tell that because he goes to visit Blaine. Um, and though he spent more time with Doherty in the scene that we get with Stuart Blaine's dinner, he doesn't really think of Doherty as having an impact on him. He thinks of Blaine as being the admirable one. Smart, who also ex- did a lot of experiments and whose like own idol was Tilly, who took over Tilly's business, who also engaged in some mad science with oranges in order to create Tang. You know, his grandfather had uh, maybe an impact on him. Um, there's some imagery there that suggests there's some like overlap between these personalities uh, and the story, which is it's itself a weird thing. So we're, I think, you know, we see in that Morrister's Mar- Marvels of Science book, um, this kind of like merging of people when an evil person murders another evil person. I think this concept of merging beings is brought up not to suggest explicitly that Weir murdered Julius Smart or Weir murdered his father, like whomever, but that the the weight of these relationships that are born of either great admiration or great, great hatred, as in the case of murder, does ca- allow us to adapt some of those traits. And so I think Weir's role models are all greedy, bad to evil people the people he gets into relationships with even cherry gold though she's a child um is greedy right lois is greedy that this is like all he knows and so that's why it feels at times in the novel too that we're himself that this novel is an examination of a mundane or banal kind of evil movement through life in america it's interesting to see that the person that Weir wants to be, that when he's making active choices, especially thinking about the future, settling on career paths and big life choices, that he really is modeling himself on these people. But yet who he is in his quiet moments alone seems to be much more shaped by all of these other types of people, by Hannah, by Olivia, by by Doherty, or the Dohertys, perhaps the Doherty family, maybe. And I think that's a real contrast, right? That his his sort of public persona is modeled after people who are are wicked and motivated by the wrong things. But who he really is at home seems actually to be shaped by the goodness that he's had in his life. And I think that's an unhealthy way to live your life, uh, to have that kind of of tension between, you know, your private self and your your public self. And, uh, you know, that might be a big part of, of what this book is about. That's something I think we'll want to take up in our puzzles and mysteries a little bit. But it's certainly something that jumped out to me when I was reading the book straight through again. Well, let's talk a little bit more about some of the things that you've been been getting at, Brandon, which is, hey, the juice plant. Um, over and over again, all through the book, or at least once it's introduced, we see the impact of the juice plant on both the regional economy and also the regional environment as being, by and large, negative, right? That's certainly something that is all over chapter five. I think we get it in chapter four as well. And so something that we do get here is Wolf, the political philosopher as well, something that we've also been tracking from really the very first episode of this show, or at least from the very first story that we covered on this show. That is all over the place here in Peace as well, where we see Wolf thinking about what is the world like, what's good about it and what's bad about it, but also what is a type of world that 
would be better? What's the type of world that we would like to live in? And I think we get some of this here in particular in this speech that Janet Turner, one of the the carnies, the the mother of the dog boy, makes to Julius Smart in the the story that he is telling in chapter three. It's this speech about essentially how being an employee is for suckers, right? That really the thing that people should be striving for is to have their own independence, not necessarily to be rich, to to be wealthy, but to have a place in the world in which they are their own boss, right? Running their own small business. For her, being a carny is your own small business. You have some physical abnormality that you can sell as a type of entertainment. And that's something that she feels lucky to have as an an accident and is something she's actively trying to get for her own son because being an employee of a big business is for suckers. It's not a good thing. It's not something that she wants for her child. And this is something that, well, one, we see this in Wolf's own life, right? We know that Wolf is working for Procter and Gamble in Ohio when he writes this book. We have a pretty strong sense that at this time of Wolf's life in the early 1970s, that he doesn't love his job and maybe just doesn't love having a job at all, that he doesn't like being an employee like this. And Shortly after this, actually, he makes a move away from that. This is when he moves to the Chicago suburbs and and takes a job as one of the editors of a magazine, which, to be clear, is still an employee, but it's an entirely different type of business. It's one where he gets to be creative, he gets gets to write, and so on. And then not really that long after that, with the success of Book of the New Sun, he retires from that job. He retires from that job, or we shouldn't say retire, he quits that job and starts his own small business, which is to say being a professional writer who now, because he has a best-selling masterpiece, can sell any book that he writes, at least for a little while, as long as they continue to sell, right? And that's really the dream. And we see that here in Janet Turner's speech as well. This is also a place where we can bring in specifically some of Wolf's other stories that we have read uh, recently in terms of stories, but maybe less recently in terms of episode numbers, years, I think, as well. (laughs) But to go way back in time and think about the Gene Wolf who wrote For Lesson and the Gene Wolf who wrote Hour of Trust. This is the same Gene Wolf on display here. There's a lot of cynicism and maybe not as much resentment, but certainly a lot of cynicism in this novel. The voice of Weir is very different uh, than the voice of the you know, writer who wrote for less than an hour of trust. But the sense that something is being withheld from you, and maybe it's just a sense of self-determination, right? And which which is itself maybe a, a complicated sort of position to take uh, in terms of what you want out of being in the world. But it seems as though self-determination is really what is important to Wolf. And we see that in the farmer's speech also at the end of the novel, that these people come in, people like smart and they sell us on something that seems superficially to be better than what we have or an improvement on what we had. But what it does is it improves us out of existence is, is a weird critique of it. And I, and I just keep on returning to that phrase kind of in my mind as you are describing the way this motif keeps turning up in the novel and is really a core theme of the novel that the problem isn't so much ambition. It's not so much a desire to leave a mark or an impact. It's that we give away our self-determination to these 
people who won't, they don't stop growing. They, they expand and expand and expand as Aunt Olivia puts it, or, you know, grow and grow and grow in terms of numbers until what we, maybe we got what we wanted, but they've taken more than we could ever ask for, you know, from them, like this factory. Now there's an amusement park in town. Now you need two people to be working to afford an apartment in town. You know, there's not playgrounds. The schools maybe aren't great. This factory's ruined the farmland or the, the other places in the valley aren't doing so hot. And so people are out of work and there's one thing keeping the whole economy of the valley alive. The small businesses are, you know, maybe just owned by the factory owner, which happens to be the case. The small businesses are gone. Now Smart's business is a conglomerate. And so all of these things really come into play as, you know, Wolf is commenting on the idea, I guess, of maybe even it's as big as individualism and self-determination versus uh, collectivism and and security in uh, groups and numbers. Yeah, I think what we see on full display here is Wolf's distributism, this political philosophy of G.K. Chesterton and Hilaire Belloc that, uh, in a simplistic nutshell, envisions a, a perfect material world of small communities living in harmony with nature in which not maybe every individual, but every family, every household is essentially a small business so that no one is necessarily uh, financially, economically dependent on one other person, right? We're all dependent on each other working together in a community, but that there's not a pyramid, right? That there's a network rather than uh, a, a pyramid. We know that this is something that appealed to Wolf. Certainly, we know that G.K. Chesterton is someone who appealed to Wolf. <laughs> He's literally in this book, right, with the the knife and so on. And so, yeah, I think that's something that we see on full display here that, that Wolf envisions, I think, you know, maybe not entirely warranted, but envisions a a past of the the early twentieth century, maybe pre depression, uh, early twentieth century American Midwest, which was living that way, and that the depression and then other things, other developments in the twentieth century have destroyed that world, and there's this lamentation for that. Uh, I'm not sure that that really that that world ever really quite existed the way that it's presented here. But also, I think that you know something akin to that maybe did exist, and I think that Wolf is right to be lamenting that. And certainly, it's a big part of Wolf's view here, living through a lot of these changes himself as well. And uh, before I move us on to the the final topic here on our outline, I do just want to say that I think we will be talking about Four Lesson again in the next episode in our Puzzles and Mysteries episode. So I'm going to read Four Lesson one more time, Brandon. I don't know if uh, I, I want to tell you you ought to, given our quick turnaround here, but uh, uh, it will come up again. Yeah, I will definitely be reading The White People, I think, before before the next episode <laughs> to see if there's more more gems there. But um, excellent, excellent. You can you can just I mean just recalling the story, you can you can just see, at least in terms of imagery, how many overlaps there are between peace and for lesson. All right. Well, thinking about uh, stories and uh, how they work in juxtaposition with other stories, hey, that's the last topic on our outline today. It's stories and storytelling. I think just about every Gene Wolfe story and, and novel ends up being about stories and storytelling in some way. I don't think that there's any need for me, Brandon, to run through some kind of catalog of all the places where we see stories and storytelling <laughs> happening here in the novel because it's just so upfront. It is such a feature 
feature of this novel. Well, we'll talk about structure in our, our third and final wrap-up episode, but I just want us to take a few minutes here at the end of this show just to acknowledge that this is an important part of what Wolf is doing, that Wolf thinks that stories really matter. He thinks that storytelling is an important component of what it is to be a person. He thinks it's an important component of any sort of community, whether we're thinking about a town like Cashinsville or a family or a network of friends or even an entire civilization, and that we get stories all over the novel piece working to connect people both in place and also across time. And also, as I pointed out in the last segment, that we also see books functioning as an important uh, material object here in this story that can even serve as clues to tell us who's good and who's bad. I think it's really important that Olivia's house is now the library, right? I think that is hugely symbolically important here in thinking about Olivia as this incredibly important person in his life in no small part because she's actually a big source of stories and storytelling for Weir. And so, yeah, I just want to call attention to the fact that, once again, one of the things I love the most about Wolf is right here, front and center in peace, this love of stories, this love of storytelling, but also seeing them as vital to who we are and what we are as a species. Yeah, the way that stories function in this story are ways of of framing kind of Weir's private mythology about the world and the kind of world he lives in. So many of these stories that we come across are larger than life that give us a sense of who these characters are. You know, Smart's ghost story and Weir's remembrances of his birthday party and then the the Andrew Lang fairy tales, the Thousand and One Nights story, the Necronomicon. The way all of these come together is really about Weir's framing of his kind of private approach, his his secret mythology of the world. And this has kind of these Jungian senses to them. You know, we see that in the conversation about naming with Aunt Olivia. How do things really get rolling? When does one person's name for something become a broader categorical description? When does one person's myth about their aunts become everybody's understanding of these stories? And these stories, I think, are also about reframing the past. And 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 so I want to read a passage. This is from page 32. It's also during the Christmas scene. Uh, another parenthetical phrase that I just think is really stuck with me about memories and storytelling and, and the reframing of the past to make sense of the present. This is what Weir writes. But it may be that the only reason childhood memories act on us so strongly is that being the most remote we possess, they are the worst remembered, and so offer the least resistance to that process by which we mold them nearer and nearer to an ideal which is fundamentally artistic, or at least non-factual. So it may be that some of these events I describe never occurred at all, but only should have, and that others had not the shades and flavors, for example, of jealousy or antiquity or shame that I have later unconsciously chosen to give them. And this is such a, a key to the mental state of Weir as he's composing not only these fairy tales and uh, pieces of other texts, but also his own memories of the past. It's not to say they're untrue, but it would be, I think, closer to say they're 
non-factual, but nonetheless meaningful and true in the same way a mythology might be about, you know, the gods or the place we have in the world. It's not truth. It's just we don't have access to that kind of language of truth that will point to the things about our present, you know, because the past is really always about the present in some way. And so, yeah, listen, this is a, a nesting doll of a novel with hundreds of <laughs> stories within it. And it's just astonishing. I, I don't even think we've scratched the surface and we've been at this for two hours and now it's time to wrap things up. It's, it's astonishing what Wolf has done in 300 pages in this novel. Yeah, it absolutely is. And as we said at the top of the show, we had picked these five, you know, fairly broad categories to talk about as important themes or motifs in this book. But uh, we have not exhausted everything within <laughs> those five topics. But also, <laughs> this book is about more than just those five topics. And so uh, we hope that we'll have an opportunity to, uh, you know, hear what you, the the listeners, other readers of this book, think was important. What jumped out to you? you know, how are you reading this book? So we hope we'll we'll hear from you about that. I really hope so. We hear from you too. This book really deserves even a bit larger conversation and more time than we've given it these these past several years. And and maybe what I mean is it, it deserves broader conversation with a larger audience. I want to talk to more people than just you about it, Glenn. No offense. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this has been two years of our life. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, no, but I've loved our conversations about it, but I want to bring more people into it. And now's the opportunity to come in and you know join us. You can join us on Patreon if you haven't. You can uh, find us all over the place. Please review us if you haven't. But we're at the end of this episode. We've got two more left on peace, but that's it for now. So... Once again, I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDormand. I should make a note here as we're closing out this episode and asking people to come talk with us. You may be aware that we are going to be closing down and archiving the website forum soon, and we're going to be moving to a private Discord server that you can access through Patreon. But we are keeping the forum open until we are all done with these peace episodes, and then we'll make that full transition. Uh, reasons for, for doing that are simply that uh, uh, well, we have lost control of the forum in some sense to people who really <laughs> would like you to buy their cheap sunglasses and so on. Uh, I think uh, you can see previously in our discussion our feelings about that, I suppose. But uh, at any rate, next time we will be back with our episodes on puzzles and mysteries. And until then, we greet you and say farewell.